it's a deceptive thing sometimes judging people's faith by their appearances. As I've been following Jesus now for nearly all my life, really, I was, I was blessed to be raised in a Christian home where the gospel was not only taught to me, but also lived out by my mom and dad, sometimes in very difficult circumstances as missionaries in Mexico. I got to see what faith looked like up close, lived out day by day, sometimes with fear. And I entered ministry at a young age. This was my church home as a college student, and they were so incredibly generous to start giving me a little gas money and pocket money to volunteer to be part of the church staff when I was still in college. And as a young man, you're trying to figure out your your identity. You're trying, you know you don't have it together unless you're deluded and you know, somehow psychiatrically disturbed and, and have narcissistic personality disorder. You know you're a mess. And you look around at the, the elders ahead of you and the people who are a few steps ahead of you on the road, and, and you're looking for people who have it together. And sometimes you find them, and, and sometimes those people who you think had it together disappoint you. Sometimes they follow through. But as you continue walking along with Jesus, looking for examples and encouragement, my discovery has been that almost every single one of those people in the core of their being is afraid. We're afraid of all kinds of different things. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five has been a verse that God has used in my life. It says simply with the short, incisive wisdom of Proverbs, the fear of man brings a sneer, but whoever trusts the Lord shall be safe. That little epigrammatic saying is in the Bible because it's really at the heart of discipleship. Everybody's afraid. I know, and it's one of the burdens I feel when I get to the great privilege of opening the Bible with you, I know I'm addressing people like myself who have internal pressures and fears of all different kinds, and sometimes it can feel overwhelming. When I write sermons, I try to have an invisible audience of some of you around me, of different ages, both genders, different seasons and needs of life, looking over my shoulder, asking me, how does this apply to me? And to think of how many different kinds of fears and pressures can be brought on a congregation of this size in a single week pretty daunting. Some of you are brokenhearted because of your children. Your children have grown up enough and moved out of the house to decide what to do with God on their own. And to this point, to this day, it seems that they've decided against him and your heart's broken about it. Every week we pray for people whose lives are upended by sickness. Every week we have the mystery of trying to figure out why qualified, hardworking, honest people that seem to be at a premium in the job market can't find good jobs. Those of you who have little children, like the Guskies, and that's that's just a picture of fear right there, just to have (laughs) little children takes a great measure of faith. All kinds of pressures bearing down on all of us. The person who tells you they're not afraid has either grown to a point in their relationship with God where there is no more room left for fear. And that is possible, but it seems rare. I'm not there yet myself. 
or they're just not really in touch with reality. Almost all of us are afraid in some measure. As we read across the Old Testament, what we find are ordinary people in very, very difficult circumstances. And at the heart of their story and their decision is this issue, whether they're going to trust God or not. A leader of a small group told me, I'm not really sure my word's not his, paraphrasing what he told me. A little frustrated with my group because these stories all seem to end up in the same place. Keep going back to the same theme. Well, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think the Bible repeatedly confronts us with a few certain themes so that we'll see our story and the big story, evaluate the outcome of people making these decisions, and through the example and the warning of their lives, trust God. That's what's at stake, and that's what was happening in the life of a king you may have never heard of named Hezekiah. I don't have many slides for you this morning. You will definitely need your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please look in in one of the chairs near you. There's almost certainly to be a copy of the Bible close to you. And when you have it, I'd love for you to open it in the book of 2 Kings chapter 18. Every week we've been reading together in an edited book of Bible readings called The Story how the life of Israel unfolded on the way to Jesus. When we come to 2 Kings 18 and the life of godly King Hezekiah, it seems that all of God's promises will certainly fail and be broken. You see, because of Israel's rebellion and foolishness, a nation that was once unified became two kingdoms. The ten northern tribes were called Israel. The two much smaller southern tribes were called Judah. And these passages that we're reading this morning tell you that a mighty empire rose against the northern kingdom. And an army whose cruelty has never been matched to this day in human history came against the capital city of Samaria. That's the northern kingdom of Israel. I hope I don't drown you in names and give you a fire hydrant drink out of archaeological names and places. But the ten northern tribes had established their kingdom in the city of Samaria. And Second Kings tells us that they were attacked by the Assyrian army. And after three years of siege, Samaria was laid waste. Our wars are different. Our fights happen in moments. A soldier once described life as a soldier as long hours of boredom followed by moments of sheer terror. That's what modern combat looks like. Ancient ancient war was a very different thing. A giant army had encircled Samaria and had built earthen ramps taller than this church building. They had cut off water and food. And for three years, they subjected the people to starvation and lack of water. A previous siege of Samaria in the Bible tells us of the horrors within that city becoming so grim that a mother became a cannibal and ate her own child. It was that kind of cruelty. It was that kind of desperation. Samaria fell after three years, and the Assyrians were not content with defeating people. They wanted to eradicate nations. So this was their ancient custom. They would kill as many as it took to subdue a nation. 
And then they would deport all of those people, but not together. They would scatter them across their kingdom and resettle their land with foreigners. Over time and generations, that meant that that culture, that way of life, and in Israel's case, that faith was completely extinguished. This is why when you read in the New Testament that Jews hate Samaritans, that's why. The Samaritans were the people that rose from the intermarriage, those foreigners that were resettled inside their capital, made a hybrid faith combining elements of the the faith of the God of the Bible and the pagan religions around them, and that hatred persisted for centuries. That's why Jesus shocked his hearers later, telling a famous parable of the the good Samaritan. That's what the Assyrians had done. At the risk of making you cringe, let me tell you what their practices of war were. They would do things like run a hook through a man's eye, pass that curved hook behind his nose and out his other eye, and drag him along in captivity, blinded. Soldiers would stream into the defeated city, find pregnant women, and disembowel them to watch the baby fall from her body. They were famous for making mounds of human skulls and leaving them outside the city as a warning and trophy to the nations they were going to attack next. This is what's going to happen to you unless you surrender immediately on our terms. They've already done this to the northern kingdom. Now they come against King Hezekiah and the kingdom of Judah seems to be at risk because they are in front of the greatest, most fearsome power that they have ever known and they know on the front side what is at stake is extermination. The kingdom of Israel then has been destroyed and scattered and resettled by the Assyrian army and now the exact same enemy threatens Judah and the pressure on King Hezekiah is enormous. He stands as a decision maker between this big army and people who he knows can't defend themselves. He knows from a military human perspective it's already over because the Assyrian king had come against the last fortress city that defended the capital, a city called Lachish. And besieged it and taken it captive. If you're interested, you can Google the name of this Assyrian king and you can Google the name Lachish and you can find the carvings that the Assyrians themselves left in stone that persist to this day, showing artistically how they treated defeated enemies. This is one of those times where we have ample archaeological evidence telling you that the Bible is telling us the truth about these stories. The story of King Hezekiah and his decision begins for us in 2 Kings 18, verse 13. And at the heart of the story is this question, what is King Hezekiah and what are we going to do when everything is against us? I hope you never face an enemy as fearsome as Assyria. But your fears, the thing inside your heart, the cultural pressures outside of your family that prey on your children, that keep you awake at night, when those things come against you, who are you going to trust? Let's read King Hezekiah and see what we can learn from his example. Verse 13, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. In other words, he left them defenseless. Only the capital stands. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish. That's the fortress city he has destroyed. 
saying, I have done wrong, withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Some of your Bible translations will put it in modern terms. The cost was, the cost of ransom was 10 tons of silver or 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold. Heavy price. And it came at a great cost, an embarrassing cost. Verse 15, Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Wow. You understand what that verse is reporting? The temple was stripped bare. They went into their place of worship and stripped it down to the wood, hoping to buy off this fearsome enemy. As the story unfolds, it wasn't enough. He sent a few of his officials, including his, his commander-in-chief, his field marshal, and they met at the aqueduct. They met outside the water supply. They met outside a pool where the women of Jerusalem would come and wash. And the meeting place is significant militarily because these soldiers are standing with their army just behind them saying, this is where your death starts if you don't do what we say. We know where your water supply is. We know no one's coming to help you. We know you don't have allies who can stand against us. And this is the message they received. Verse 19. You're going to run into an ancient word here, but it's just a reference to their general calling him by his title. Verse 19. The Rabshaka said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and powerful war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? And that's at the heart of the issue. He's going to give them a long speech saying, Egypt is powerless to help you. There's no one who can save you from me. No one has ever been able to stand up against me. Who are you going to trust? Look down in verse 22. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Here this pagan king shows his misunderstanding. Hezekiah was a godly king. He had removed all the false altars from the land. And this man thinks that he's deserting God. He thinks that centralizing worship in Jerusalem is actually a bad thing. Here's a military taunt. Verse 23. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. You understand what he's saying? You're a tiny little city. I'll spot you 2,000 horses. You provide the soldiers. We won't fight ourselves against ourselves, but we'll give you 2,000 horses. I doubt you have people to mount them. And if you do, he goes on to say, it's not going to make any difference. Verse 24. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now he's claiming a word from God. 
He's saying, I'm sent to you here by your own God. And I'm going to fight you and I'm going to destroy you because he told me to do so. It gets even a little more embarrassing for Judah. Verse 26, then Elah came... Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, said to the general, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are in the wall. Now, what's he saying? They're saying, we're educated men. We speak the language of diplomacy. Please don't speak to us in Hebrew, because the soldiers watching all this are going to get terrified. It's hard to imagine a more uneven, unequal, embarrassing military situation than this. Here's the response. But the Rabshakeh, again, that's the general, said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Here's the downside. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Now he's going to give a list of defeated enemies and gods. Where are the gods of Hamath? And our pod, where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hannah, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But the people were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the general. Absolutely right. Their clothes are torn because they're making a sign of public mourning. They're basically showing up saying, King, it didn't go well. We're dead. They're bent on destroying us. We haven't been able to buy them off. And the heart of this is, who are they going to trust? Why is this story here? This story was to help the children of Israel as they continued to follow God, to be able to look back on their history and see decisive moments. See, they had, as you and I might, they had compelling reasons to give up and give in. They had overwhelming adversity coming against them. There was absolutely no reason to believe that they would stand more than a few months or years with this sort of army massed against them. They were also being told a false message about God. The, first, the second thing that has this 
pagan king told them is, I'm here on behalf of your God. He has abandoned you. He has deserted you. He sent me to judge you. And when fear creeps into your heart, one of the things that you're going to see, in addition to the overwhelming adversity that's making you afraid, you're going to start hearing all kinds of voices about God, sometimes voices claiming to be from God. Recently, a a woman who is just beginning to grow in her faith, who has suffered great loss in her life, asked me if she should take the advice of a a friend of hers who loves her, who has told her to go to a psychic, go to a spiritist to hear from the other side to receive comfort and wisdom. I told her, of course, you shouldn't. But when you're in a spiritual battle, in addition to the fear, the adversity that you recognize and that make you afraid, that fills your heart, all kinds of spiritual voices are going to be talking to you. The men on the wall and these emissaries from King Hezekiah were hearing something that would have made a lot of sense to them. Their brothers to the north were dead, scattered, resettled, destroyed. If you've ever heard a reference to the lost tribes of Israel, please understand, that's the northern kingdom. That's the capital of Samaria. They've been lost from that day to this. They were scattered then. They are only now in modern times beginning from the nations of the world to reassemble in Israel. They know this threat is real. He's not playing. He means to exterminate them. And along the way, he's going to be telling him that this is all happening because this is what God has decreed. This is why it's vital for you to stay in the Bible and to be very, very, very familiar with God's voice. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and my sheep know my voice. When the heat is on, you're going to be so stressed, you're going to be so distressed and so fearful that you'll be tempted to hear other voices besides the Lord's. But his voice doesn't change and he doesn't break promises. There's also going to be this temptation. You're going to be tempted, as Hezekiah was, to misunderstand how to best protect the people that you love. You see, being a king is lonely business. There's, we have a saying here in the U.S. sometimes when we joke about the boss that it's good to be king. It's not on a day like this. Hezekiah is faced with a real-world choice with men in an army who are already present saying, decide whether you want to be scattered and resettled and have your culture disappear or whether you would like to watch your people die in front of you. If you look in these archaeological findings that they found, they're easy to find on the Internet. You'll find a stone carving of the king of Assyria with a man kneeling before him putting a spear through his eyes. That wasn't metaphorical. That's how the Assyrians treated the people they captured and conquered. And Hezekiah knows there's no one on earth, certainly not Egypt, who is going to come to his aid. No one is coming to help him. And the pressure that he must feel... Must be, what about the pregnant women behind these walls? What will I say to the fathers? What will I say to the young men? What will I say to the children when these enemies start massing around us and start building these earthen ramps to run over the walls and drop into our city? The spiritual fight continues to this day. 
And a lot of people have lamented the erosion of the Christian faith in America. Let me tell you one of the things that's driving what we now see, not only in the world around us, but within Christian homes. The cultural pressure for you to succumb to outside voices that are not of the Lord and to let your kids get ahead by going along are so loud, so incisive, so insistent that you are being tempted to misunderstand how to love and serve and protect the people you love. And the very safest place for your kids and your grandkids is in the center of God's will, regardless of what the outside culture says. Days are coming where it will be increasingly difficult to be a Christian in America. It's already happening. We're being portrayed now routinely in the space of the last five years as people who are bigoted and hateful. Whose churches, for instance, enjoy tax-exempt advantages to the enrichment of ourselves to serve our own purposes and our own needs. In 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it's going to be increasingly hard to say that you follow Jesus and that you continue to believe, for instance, that he is the only Savior of the world. That simple statement from the lips of Jesus in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that's becoming radically offensive. That's not going to change. So all of us, including those of you who are young, the millennial generation and those coming behind you who were raised in an environment that are being raised in an environment where you cannot ever remember where that wasn't offensive, where that didn't bring pressure. These spiritual voices are going to be talking to you saying, let's make a deal. Settle with me, compromise with me and live. What is King Hezekiah going to do? Well, we're told before this all started, we're, giving a sum, we're given a summary of his life in 2 Kings 18.5. Here's what we're told of King Hezekiah. Would you read it with me? In spite of all this pressure, this is where Hezekiah ended up. Read this with me. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. The summary of King Hezekiah's life is he held on to God. With all of this coming against him, with this army, with this pressure, with this responsibility coming against him, he held fast to God. How did he do it? We're told how in, in chapter 19. Look in Second Kings now 19, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth. And what's it say? He went into the house of the Lord. And he sent for the prophet who spoke in his days, who served kings before him and who served him. He sent for the prophet Isaiah. In other words, the first thing that Hezekiah did was humble himself. He didn't stand on royal pride. He didn't stand on position. He didn't stand on history. He humbled himself and he said, God, this is too big for me. 
And he adopted the cultural symbols of being brought low and of being helpless. And he sent for the messenger of God who was speaking God's word with his actual living voice in his day. He sent for Isaiah and he wanted to know what does God say about this. That's the first thing anyone should do when they're facing this kind of crushing pressure. And that is go to God. If I'm very honest with you, my first inclination when it's really hard for me is to work a little bit harder and to figure it out. I'll gather some friends. I'll ask for advice. I'll ask other people to pray. Do you do this? But I have a great gift in my home. My wife, who will see me running around, stressed, unable to pay attention, not listening very well, waking up early, going to bed late, and she will ask this simple question from time to time. Bruce, have you prayed about it? And the honest answer, if I'm behaving like that, generally speaking, is, no, not really. I've been getting up earlier. I've been working harder. I talked to three really smart friends, and I read a couple books. But I didn't humble myself. I didn't go to God. I didn't lay it out in front of him and say, God, if you don't intervene... I'm lost. I have no idea what to do. I have no idea where to turn. If you don't remind me who you are and you don't tell me what you've said, I'll lose it. Isaiah said in verse 6, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Isaiah sent a message back saying, paradoxically, incomprehensibly, don't worry about him. I know who he is, and I'm going to take care of him. How did that play out? Well, Hezekiah received a threatening letter. Look down in verse 10. Here's the letter he received from this king who left momentarily to tend to another war. He told him, I'm coming back, and here's what I want you to remember, King Hezekiah. Verse 10, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. Shall you be delivered? Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Remember, I've been telling you when the story slows down, it's because it wants you to see something. Hezekiah went into the presence of God, went to the place of worship, and he took the threatening letter with him and he laid it before God and he said, God, look at this. Look what they're saying. God, they're threatening to kill us. Look what they've said. He not only went to God, he also began to pray according to his purpose. And I think this is the heart of Hezekiah's faith. In just a few short words, you're going to hear a desperate man remember every promise that God ever made to him and to his people. Because Hezekiah has his eye on future history. He still remembers the past and he remembers what the past is going to mean to the future. He remembers that from this nation, somehow, in spite of this army and in spite of this threat, they've been told that someone will come from Judah who will bless every nation on earth. And today, with that army at the gates, that doesn't seem possible. 
It doesn't seem possible that an army that impales people to leave them to die for days or to make makes mounds of human skulls or delights in slaughtering children would have any mercy or is anyone on earth who can turn them away. So Hezekiah prays, not according to his circumstances, but according to God's purposes. Verse 15. And if you have my translation, the translation I've been reading from, If you don't, just follow along. But if you have the translation I'm reading from, would you read these next few verses with me? Otherwise, we'll have a cacophony. But if you have the English Standard Version, read the next few verses with me, beginning in verse 15. It says, And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. The heart of his prayer is in the last sentence. Did you see it? God, save us so that they will know who you are. This is the pinnacle of faith. God, we're in deep distress and we need to be saved. But the purpose you'll achieve in saving us is you'll make all the nations of the earth know that you are God. What's Hezekiah doing here? He is waiting for God's promise. And if you read the rest of the chapter, we're told that God worked a mighty deliverance. In one night, this mighty encamped army A few survivors got up and found that 185,000 soldiers were dead overnight. Sometimes you read the numbers in the Bible, 185,000. That's essentially the population of Huntington Beach. Imagine walking out of your house and knowing and, and discovering that almost every person in this big city is dead. What did Sennacherib do? His generals understood the message. They went straight home. And sometime later, both the Bible and archaeology tells us that while Sennacherib was at prayer in the presence of one of his gods in front of an idol, his two sons came in with a sword and killed him. The irony is rich. The gods that had threatened Israel cannot even protect their own king while he worships. Why did God do that? Because he had promised Not an arrow will fly, not a person in the city is going to perish because I am going to keep my promises. Isaiah ministered in these days, this is the heart of God. In Isaiah 49, we're told this, Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. You may feel that way when you're under crippling adversity. When other voices, when false voices are speaking to you spiritually, you may feel in that moment that God has forgotten you. Listen to God speak to people who feel like that. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? 
Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, your walls, the city walls that are being threatened. Those walls are continually before me. This is one of the most tender pictures in the entire Bible. This is God, the creator of heaven and earth, saying to people who feel and believe they have been forgotten by God, holding out his hands, metaphorically, poetically saying, listen, I've carved your name on my hands. I can't forget you. I live for you. I never make any move in your life without seeing your future, your name, your life continually before me. How could you say, Israel, that I have forgotten you? The full heart of how much God loves Israel and how committed he is to the gospel shining from these oppressed, threatened people into every nation of the world comes into full focus in Isaiah 53, where we read this. Speaking of Jesus, 700 years before his birth, this is how God is going to keep the promise to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Isaiah prophesied this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And here's the gospel. Here's the good news. We wandered away from God, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of assault. That's how much he loves you. You see the hands of the The hands of God engraved with your future in Isaiah 49 become the actual literal hands of the Son stretched out on a cross. That's why Isaiah 49, God spoke prophetically to Jesus saying, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, did God keep his promise? What I've been talking to you about this morning occurred 700 years before Jesus was born. I've been talking to you about ancient military history. So how ancient? 2,700 years old. Assyria is an archaeological footnote. I doubt that more than a handful of people who will attend church today had heard of the King Sennacherib outside of the Bible and have seen the archaeological oddities and the discoveries that tell us that he actually existed. He has been reduced to the dust of history. You know who lives and keeps every promise God ever made? Jesus. He's the one that extends his pierced hand to you, saying to you, in your distress, in your fear, I haven't forgotten you. I pierce my hands for you. I crush my son for you so that you could be cleansed and forgiven, so that you could call me father. And so Jesus, the Savior, could call you his brother, his sister. That's how much he loves you. You don't need to be afraid. What do you need to do? You need to go to God. You need to pray according to his purpose. And you need to remember the lavish promises he made to you. All of them, every single one of them, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Can we pray together, please? What is it that's making you so afraid? Listen about that. If you're a man, you probably don't feel it as fear. You probably feel it as anger. 
What is it that makes you irritable? What is it that fills you with dread? What is it that makes you filled with anger, with rage, with frustration? That's the nexus of spiritual battle in your life. That's the point where you need to trust the Lord. I know what mine are. What are yours? Would you talk to the Lord about that? If you thought that he is, if you thought for a moment that he has forgotten you, look at him in history. Driving enemies away from his people to protect them. Carving their future in the palms of his hands. Dying a brutal death. A death so cruel that it was eventually outlawed on a cross. To bear my sins and yours. To bear your fears, your anger, your resentment, your hatred, your indifference to God and to other people. All of that. The way you got lost, the way you wandered away from God... Jesus took that to the cross and died for it so that you could be restored and whole and forgiven and in your Father's love protected as well. If you're not following Jesus, make it really clear and simple for you. My specific invitation to you is that you'll turn away from your sin and say, Jesus, I am so very sorry. Please forgive me. Make me part of your family. Give me a home in heaven. And he will. It's what he died to do. He welcomes back all who return to him, who turn their back on sin and self and come back to him. Jesus has never turned anyone away, not one. He never has, he never will. And if you're already his child and like me, you've been following him for years, but your heart still races in fear. Maybe it's kids, maybe it's finances, maybe it's health. Maybe it's just a foreboding and just a unsettledness about the future. Maybe you're single and hating it. Maybe you're married and it's very, very hard for you. In all of those things, God wants you to run to him, humble yourself, pray according to his purpose, and wait for him to keep every one of the promises he made you in Christ. Father, as a church family, as best we can, with your grace, we want to come humbly to you and ask that you would be glorified in our lives, that we would be made low and small, but you would be made great. That you would be magnified, Lord, as we are minimized. And that you would save us so that your name would be known and loved and worshipped among the nations. So that you would see your will fulfilled in our lives as we do, Lord, your grace-empowered best to hear your voice and follow your Son. That's why we give you this offering. That's why people are making spiritual decisions. Lord, bring people to yourself, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Hinton Beach community.